Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone, today's guest, Rebecca Hobbs-Lawrence, is going to be a familiar voice to many of you. In fact, she was the guest on our most recent episode, talking about the holidays and grief. I had planned to publish this conversation later in the year, just to break it up a bit, but it's such an important one, I couldn't wait. For those of you who haven't listened to an episode with Rebecca before, she and I have worked together at Dougie Center for just over 20 years. She is the coordinator of our Pathways program for families facing an advanced serious illness, and she also runs bereavement groups for children and teens who have had a sibling, parent, or caregiver die. Like many folks, Rebecca's personal experience with grief is what drew her to this work. Her father died of heart cancer when he was 34 and she was 11. He was one of only six people in the world to have this kind of cancer. After he died, when people would say, the odds are one in a million, Rebecca assumed she would be the one, that anything bad or tragic could and most likely would happen to her. Given this worldview, she did what so many of us do when we know bad things can happen. She started planning for the worst. This planning for being one in a million shaped so much of how she approached school, dating, family, and becoming a parent. Later in life, as a grandparent, she's had the chance to rewrite the ending of this one in a million narrative, as she's witnessed her grandson survive an extremely rare brain disease. Rebecca and I talk about the early days of parenting and how that time sparked grief all over again in a really deep way. About how vigilance and anxiety led her to overfunction as a parent, and how the world around her rewarded this behavior. We also get into the joy she felt watching her kids be able to be kids, and how that mirrored back just how much responsibility she had to take on at 11 when her father died. We also talk about an aspect of grief that will be familiar to many of you who are parenting after a parent has died, grieving for what both your kids and your parent who died will miss out on, getting to know each other. Rebecca, welcome back to Grief Out Loud. This is your like 20th time on the podcast. I'm not sure. Many times. It's very nice to have you back again. Nice to be here. I don't know if it's been 20, but... I think at least five. We'll go with five. Yeah, this may be a six. I'll count and then I'll let you know. And listeners, I will link in our show notes to all the other episodes that I have done with Rebecca if you want to tune in for more of her insights and wisdom. And for listeners who maybe haven't heard you on the the show before, can you give a little bit of your backstory? My dad died when I was 11 from heart cancer. That's what I say every single group when I'm with the kids. That is my intro to Rebecca. Um, But yeah, he had a very rare form of heart cancer, myxosarcoma of the heart. Um, He'd be the sixth one in medical history to have ever been diagnosed with it, which really for me, I say that because it frames how I very much see my life, I think, even as an adult. Um, And my brother was nine and 
yeah, his death um, when I was 11 definitely has shaped shaped my world and uh, my parenting and I think all of my all of my relationships. You know, in, in the 20 plus years we've known each other, Rebecca, I realized I don't know your dad's name. Vince. Actually, it was Harold after his father, um, but he hated that. So Vince, middle name. <laughs> <laughs> it's calling to it's calling to mind a very different image of I don't know how I I'm not sure how I thought of your dad in my mind, but Vince makes him look a lot different in my mind's eye. So yeah, you think about a little like fisherman elf that would be my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and so with your dad having such a rare form of cancer, and you're 11, what did you know about his illness when you were a kid? So that was 40, oh my gosh, I'm going to age myself now, right? Uh, 44 years ago. And so I think what we know about cancer now is so vastly different than what we knew in 1977 when he was diagnosed. So initially he he had a stroke on his uh, 34th birthday. The doctors didn't know what it was for a couple of weeks, actually. Um, he was in the hospital and I just knew he was really ill. I had never even heard of the word cancer before. That hadn't been something I was familiar with from friends or relatives. And so when I first heard the word, it was completely foreign to me. And even the word stroke was foreign to me. The first time I heard the word stroke was on the playground when one of my classmates told me my dad had a stroke. And I was like, no, he didn't. And they're like, that's what my mom said. And I went home and I was like, what? Like, you know, why are why am, why am I hearing this at school? All of that language, the medical terminology was, I, I just fell into it, like all of a sudden with no context for any of it, that experience. Yeah, it happened like overnight. It's kind of hard to think back to a time when, cancer was a word that would have been so unknown to someone who was in, you know, their later years of elementary school. And that might just be a skewed sample for me because we work at Dougie Center. Right. But I feel like kids today probably have heard of that term before in a yeah. way that when I think back to the 70s, yeah, maybe that wasn't just part of our everyday language. You know, I mean, I think about lung cancer, breast cancer, you know, people, in my children's classes, their parents or grandparents being diagnosed. Like, I think it is something people definitely talk about much more. And I think it is being diagnosed in a way that was vastly different over 40 years ago. And, but it certainly wasn't in my, my experience of childhood up until then. And you mentioned too that recognizing just how much your dad's death and what he died of has shaped a lot of who you are as an adult and as a parent, which is what we're really going to talk a lot about today. I'm wondering, like looking back and thinking of yourself as like 11, 12, 13, do you remember what you initially thought? Like, oh, because my dad died, my life is now unpredictable. My father was the stability, the consistency in my family. My mom is passion and creativity and laughter and big love. Um, and my father, although incredibly pay playful, he was 
consistent. He was consistent in everything he did. I, he was dependable. I could count on him for everything. And so with his death, not only did it completely uproot our entire family, um, we had no grounding, but I, I saw my life as being very unpredictable from then on and prepared myself in ways I think I became very hypervigilant, which definitely plays out in how I approached school, how I approached dating, how I approached parenting, um, that hypervigilance that came with a sense of unpredictability. What does hypervigilance look like in school? For me, hypervigilance was always making sure that I understood what the teacher wanted If I didn't, I was constantly asking. I mean, it it looks like an exceptional student is what it looks like. You know, I was on the, I was on the president's list. I was on honor roll all the time. I would do more than I needed to do. I was like extra credit. And it, it gave my mom, especially a very false sense of how I was doing emotionally and psychologically inside because I was performing so well. Everyone was like, oh, you don't have to worry about her. She's doing great. Not realizing that my over-functioning was because I was incredibly anxious and felt like anything could fall apart at any given moment. So I always had a plan A, plan B, plan C. I still do. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, this sounds very familiar. (laughs) I mean, my kids even laugh. Like next to me, they gave me a plaque that says, basically, I have a plan all for every letter of the alphabet, you know? (laughs) So. (laughs) And then as you got older, what's your sense of how did your dad's death and this grief and this new like relationship with vigilance and, and worry and anxiety How did that play into the hopes that you had for what your life would look like when you got older? I never imagined my life older. I mean, I could see into like my 20s maybe, but I never, I never saw myself as a older woman. Um, I never imagined, you know, what life might be like beyond 30, 40. Um, Not that I didn't hope for it. But again, I always planned, I hoped for the best, planned for the worst, right? So my planning for the worst always looked like, well, I just don't, I don't go there. I knew I wanted to be a parent. I always loved children. I knew that was a part of it. Um, So that, I had no doubt for that. My father was an exceptional parent. I was very fortunate. I wanted to be able to have that experience but it did play out. I mean, I, I was, you know, 20 going, I don't think I'm ever going to get married, but I'll have kids because I didn't see myself with a lifelong partner. You know, I didn't see myself being able to be with anybody long-term because I just wasn't sure if I'd be alive or not, honestly. Did that play into your thoughts of being a parent too? Because I've heard from some other, you know, folks who had parents die when they were younger of this fear of, I can't have a kid because if I die, then they'll be dealing with the same thing I dealt with. And it sounds like you kind of had that sense from a partner, but I didn't know if that was a role with your kids too. Yeah, I was fearful, but I think I just, I wanted it so bad. And I think part of it is, is I wanted to create something maybe that I, I didn't have and, and hope for still. So I did want to be a parent. 
I didn't doubt that ever. It, it just um, made me a very probably anxious, hypervigilant parent, um, which I not even think I know it did. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't doubt I want to do it. I, I kind of felt like maybe that as horrible as it was, I knew that I could plan for for people to take care of them. Like that was part of my planning. Like I had a plan for everything, right? So I did have a plan if something happened to me and planned in ways for them to, to know who I was. I mean, they have letters, you know, when I die, <laughs> I'm sure the cascade of, you know, memorabilia coming to them. Um, so there was things I put in place to make sure that they were cared for, but I never doubted it. How old were your kids when you start, first started writing them If I Die Letters? <laughs> um, they weren't so much if, if I Die Letters, but just more of like, this is what, this is how much I love you. This is, this is what you bring to my life. Just if something were to happen when they were small, that they would know how much I love them. You know, I don't think I started writing letters like, if I don't make it off the plane, you know, this like, <laughs> probably till they were teenagers. <laughs> and I still have them in a book and I kind of always laugh about it. They're, they're with all of my like this. I have a, a black book that's like when I die here, here are notes and here are also all my passwords for all of my accounts on everything <laughs> <They're> all together. <laughs> So, so even though when they were younger, you were writing these letters from a, like, I want you to know how much I love you and to sort of document that relationship, there's still that backbeat of I could die because my dad died. And that's kind of what's pushing some of this wanting to document it for them. Right. And it was my dad died from something that only six people in medical history ever had. Like I knew from a very young age that when someone said, oh, the odds of that happening are so small, they're one in a million, I'd be like, oh, yep, I could be that one. Like, that's how I always saw my life. You know, again, I always hoped for the best that I'd be in that other category. But I always planned that if it was going to happen to somebody, it would happen to me. Yeah, that like the most least likely thing to happen will happen to me will happen to me. Yeah. And 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 it has in multiple times in my life. Like I, I realized that, I mean, that can happen to everybody, but that has happened. And so I do see my life in, a, in living it as a, the extremes. Like I'm very aware of the extremes. So take us back to the kind of early days of being a parent for your two oldest kiddos who are not that far apart in age. Like how old were you? And what do you remember about those early days of being a parent? Yeah. You know, I think pregnancy, pregnancy itself was, uh, I say easy. I, I really went to my mom for a lot of that. It wasn't until after I had them and my life felt very chaotic. I mean, I had a newborn. There was just a lot of other instability in my personal life. And, and all of a sudden I just missed my father terribly. That dependable steady grounding presence that he provided, I missed that. So even early on being, it really impacted my joy of parenting a baby 
even because I, I was so intensely grieving again. Like it kind of caught me out of nowhere of like, I have this beautiful little baby girl and what is wrong with me? So I suffered from postpartum depression and um, just this intensity of, of grief really impacted my ability to, to be joyful with my daughter at first um, until I kind of was aware of like, oh, what's happening? And it really was, mis- there's just aspects of my father that I missed so much of my life. It hadn't been filled in by anybody else. It was just a hole still in my life um, that I hadn't really been aware of. Um, so that was my earliest parenting feelings of like, oh my gosh, what's going on? As my children got older, I think I was very much not wanting to let them out of my sight. Um, again, knowing that things can happen unexpectedly, which I think when they were really young, it worked well for them. Um, I went on all the field trips, you know, I was, <laughs> I was the parent on every single field trip and I was the best, you know, field trip chaperone ever. <laughs> like I had the cocoa and cookies in the car. I was, they all wanted to be with me. I tried to make it as much fun as possible for my kids that I was always around, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but I was also like reinforced by other people for kind of my anxiety, hypervigilance in in ways that kind of kept it going and also played well too. Like there's, it's not all bad, right? Like I was the first immediately to know when something was wrong with my children medically, like doctors would always say to me, oh my gosh, you got them here so quick, like with pneumonia or with you know, all these other types of like respiratory kinds of conditions or um, things that would happen. And doctors would be amazed that I, I didn't hem and haw about it. You know, I would be like, Oh, this is happening. We're going like, I was already like half packed for the hospital, but that kind of uh, positive reinforcement from medical staff that I was not just doing the right thing, but I was doing it so efficiently and quickly, you know, was like, pat on the back for me, you know, as like, Oh, I'm doing this right. So it, it played out in ways that were very helpful. I was asking my daughter today, like, what would you want me to say? And she, and she mentioned that she's like, you know, one of the things you did leave me with as a parent myself is this kind of ability to always be like half ready for that to happen. I think their teen years were incredibly hard. You know, that that was hard. I turned 11 just weeks after my dad's 34th birthday when he had his stroke. My oldest daughter, I was the oldest child, my oldest daughter turned 11 in April, the same month my dad's birthday was, and I turned 34. That, that really took me for a, a mind trip. That was probably the year before I started thinking about turning 34, because I hadn't really imagined what my life would be like past 34, which is ironic because my mom was still alive and she was past 34. (laughs) Like, um, but again, I still had that sense of like, well, if it could happen, it it will happen to me. And so I started thinking about it, but then after the holidays, it really started hitting. And that's when I became acutely aware 
oh my gosh, my daughter's turning 11. My anxiety just ramped up. Them being away from me, like every cold and sniffle, like if there was something that I could imagine happening, I was. It was hard for all of them. It was hard on me. Um, and I didn't know what was going on. I felt, I felt like there might be something wrong with me. I didn't have friends I could talk to about it. I was afraid to tell people because I thought maybe they'd think I was crazy. Did that vigilance around health, around your daughter's health, did it also apply to you? Yeah, you know, for my own health, it was kind of the opposite. I was very quick to to get on to like what was going on with them. But for me, because there was a part of me that always thought, oh, it's going to happen. One time, right before the holidays, I was t- incredibly anxious, right, right before the holidays when this was happening. And I thought, oh my gosh, something's, something's wrong with me. Like we're going to go to Peacock Lane. Which is a street with a street with lots of uh, lights and decorations, folks, for those of you who are outside the Portland area. It's a long-standing historic place. You go and you freeze and you drink cocoa and you look at lights. <laughs> Huge Portland tradition. And um, and you walk it. And I, I thought, oh, my gosh, there's like my chest is hurting. Um, I don't feel good. I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go. And in my mind, I was like, well, the walk will make me feel better or it will kill me. Like those were my two extremes. Like I didn't tell my husband this. I didn't tell anybody else this. And I, I did it and I was okay. And I came home, but I still was having some problems and I wasn't sure what it was. I my chest pains were getting worse. And I did go to the doctor then because it was like, Oh, I have to go. And I told him what I did. And he was like, Oh, he's like, I have never heard anybody tell me that before. He's like, you know, that that's really not good. And I was like, but I'm here now. He's like, yeah, but maybe you wouldn't have been, you know, but it was my, and it was anxiety. I was having anxiety attacks and I was having chest pains from that, but just that thought in my head of like, well, it will either kill me or (laughs) like, that's how, that's how it played out for me in my health, which again, looking back, I'm like, it's a funny story in my family now. They all know about it, but you know, at the time I just, I was scared, you know, my, how my grief was impacting my parenting at that time and how I saw my own life and possible death. And, you know, just, I wish I had been able to talk with people more openly about it then. Were there things that you learned about yourself at 11 by watching your daughters turn 11? There, oh, wow. Um, how strong I was. I could look back and be like, wow, Rebecca, you were incredibly strong. I took care of my brother. My mom was very unavailable for a while. And so I took care of my nine-year-old brother. So I could seem like you're strong, you're resilient. Like I had all these positive things for myself to say. And in watching them be 11 and having fun with their friends and it, it was things that were kind of silly too, like just shopping stuff. When I turned 11, I didn't want to talk about shopping or boys. Like those were kind of meaningless to me at that point. 
And so I actually reveled in watching my daughters and listening to them talk to their friends about normal 11-year-old stuff. I think, again, I probably became that parent who was like, ooh, ooh, I'll drive. I'll drive you to the movies. I'll drive you to the mall because I loved hearing their conversations because they were so normal to me. And I missed that. I really wanted to cultivate that for them. It really highlighted how much of a childhood you stopped having when your dad died. Yes. Yeah. So as much as my anxiety in some ways was challenging for them, I also feel like I really wanted to provide a lot of opportunity and space for them to explore that for themselves, those kinds of relationships and those normal adolescent teen wonderings and without the responsibility that I had. Another thing I hear quite a few people talk about whose parent died when they were young and then they become a parent and it's the, my parent who died is never going to know my kids. My kids are never going to know my parent who died. How do I bring the memory of this person into our family and wondering how did you kind of figure that out with your kids of making sure they knew your dad? There's a lot of things I have around my house that are just kind of symbolic of my dad and they know that. So there's stories. We have a lot of fish around my house. My father was a fisherman. We have him in the garden. We have him off. We have fish hanging off our tree on my wall. There is a fish that's just always there. They know that that's for Papa. They've heard stories about him being a fisherman and me going with him and having fun as a child you know, uh, learning how to fish. And so there's, we've taken him to his favorite fishing spots. Um, that's a place where we've gone with them. So what we have tried to incorporate that, um, my mom and my grandparents were also very good storytellers. And so they also, not just from me, but they also, uh, definitely kept his memory alive with stories and, and sharing about him. So I think, for my daughters, especially, they were very accustomed to hearing about him and they can tell you what his favorite pie was. <laughs> you know, they can tell you, they can tell you, they could tell anybody uh, things about him, although they never met him. And I do tell them too, like in what ways I'm like him. So the things they see in me, they can say that's, that comes from your grandfather or the things I see in them too, that I've passed on. I can say, I think this is something that's been passed on to you. This is kind of an odd question, Rebecca. And so it may not be relevant, but I was wondering, do you, did you ever find yourself feeling envious of your kids or resentful that they get to have you much longer than you got to have your dad? Mm, I don't think that's a weird question. And I really haven't thought of that before. I don't think I'm envious of them in thinking about it, that I envy myself in having this experience with them. The best thing in my life that I'll ever do for me is be a parent. It is the best job I've ever had. And it's one my dad didn't get to do for very long. And so I really, at this place in my life, looking back, 
I envy myself for the life I've been granted and the gratitude I have that I have been able to have these experiences with my children and now grandchildren and one that my dad was not afforded. Um, and I don't take that lightly. I appreciate each day that I have with them. Yeah, that's like the uh, one more aspect of grief and parenting when your parent has died is grieving like your parent not being there for you, but then also grieving for what your parent is missing out on in terms of the kids that you have and being able to be a grandparent and all the, you know, the holidays and birthdays and other milestone events that they miss out on along with just the day to day of it. Absolutely. And I do feel that my, my children lost out on not experiencing my father as their grandfather. Um, he was incredibly playful. I mean, in one Christmas we got a playhouse. <laughs> we would play, we played in it. Um, he actually was wearing like my brother's cowboy hat that he got talking on my play phone that I got from Santa or something, but sitting in our playhouse with us, playing with us, the teenagers in our neighborhood even came to our house, even when I was smaller because my father was so playful we, with them, even um, water balloon tosses and, you know, all sorts of things in the summer. And he, he would have been an amazing grandfather. Um, my, my children didn't have a playful grandfather from the other side of the family. <laughs> I think that would have been amazing for them. And they didn't get that opportunity. Um, and he didn't get that opportunity with them too. And that does sadden me. What has it been like parenting? I mean, this is hard for me to say that your, your daughters are young adults now. Cause I remember them when they were really <laughs> yeah. tiny coming to Dougie yeah. center. And, you know, now one of your daughters is a parent herself and just wondering how kind of the shadow of that grief of being a kid whose dad died when you're 11, how does that continue to show up in your relationship with your kids? Mm. Well, I, I think grief is always now just a part of my life. It is, I'm always a moment away from laughing and a moment away from feeling the tears. Like they live simultaneously in me at the surface. Even uh, my oldest daughter's youngest son has a, a brain disease that he almost died from um, a few years ago. And he, his disease is like, again, it's like one in a million chance, you know, him even being alive. He's the youngest person to be diagnosed with this in the United States. And so that kind of plays out for me again of, you know, those odds one in a million doesn't mean anything to me. Like it plays out what has happened with my daughter and my grandson though, is that he is still with us, which has been a huge gift in so many ways, but it's kind of rewritten the ending to my story a little bit too, where my ending was always like that one in a million's always, always bad news with Julian. It is that one in a million can be this amazing blessing too. Like it, it has really giving me a more nuanced, broader sense of what the extremes in my life hold now as a parent and a grandparent. 
and the, the capacity to hold all of it too. I think of myself and my heart and my mind being much, much bigger than it ever used to be because of that experience. You know, looking back, Rebecca, at yourself as a young parent, these two young kids, knowing what you know now, this is such a cliche question, but we're going to go with it anyways. <laughs> knowing what you know now, what would you want younger Rebecca to know? Like that Rebecca who's approaching 34, the age that your dad was and he died, or, you know, your kids are approaching 11, the age you were when your dad died. Like, what would you tell that Rebecca? Mm-hmm. I would want that Rebecca to know that all of those feelings and thoughts are normal. There are others that have gone through that milestone and transition, had the same thoughts and feelings, and that it's okay to have them, that it wasn't abnormal to have them. Um, I think just that acknowledgement that what I was feeling, there wasn't something deficient or wrong with me, both personally and as a parent. So I think just that acknowledgement and then to be able to say, you know, Hey, yeah, plan, do all of the planning you need for the worst case scenario, but, you know, try to relax a little bit through that, breathe a little bit deeper, be a little bit more mindful that you can, you have the capacity to hold so much more than you think you do permission to, to let go a little bit the uncertain, unpredictable, you don't have to plan for every moment of it. Um, And I'm still talking myself into that one. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, you're still a plan A, B, C, and D, but maybe you can stop before you get to M. You know, I'm still like, I'm just shortening the alphabet right now. Well, Rebecca, thank you for coming back on Grief Out Loud and, you know, going really being really personal in this episode. All, all the other times you've been on, it's been kind of sharing more from your professional expertise of how to support kids and how to support parents and caregivers. And this time you being a parent and being a kid uh, and being a caregiver and talking from just like what it's been like to carry the grief of your dad's death all through these decades. So grateful for your willingness to, you know, be so open with us. Thank you, Jana, for inviting me. And I appreciate having the opportunity to to share and hopefully be able to resonate with other parents out there who are also parenting after a death of a parent when they were young. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, thank you so much for being part of our community, for making the show mean something out there in the world. You are always invited to reach out to me directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. I love hearing from listeners of what the show has meant for you, like if it's made a difference in your life and in your grief. D-O-U-G-Y dot is also our main website where you can find all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud as well as our free downloadable tip sheets, activity sheets, and information about our local programming. And I'm happy to share that Grief Out Loud is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. Mm-hmm.